Hi friends, Ray here, one of the pastors of Fellowship, and we've been journeying our way through Genesis 1 to 12. The theme has been origins, and each at each point we're either looking deeper into the passage or looking further into the implications of a passage. Today, it's Tower of Babel, and today I have my dear brother, Bart. Now, Bart, where are you from? I'm from Holland. You're from Holland. Now, uh, I, I'm, I don't know you well enough to pronounce your name, surname with confidence. So give it to me. I'm ready for it. It's Bart Heiligenberg. 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 Oh, that's a great name. And I won't practice it now, but uh, I've, got to, I've got to master that because to love you is to love your name and to pronounce it correctly. I always think that's yes. a rule. Uh, you know, the making the effort with names with so many different cultures we have at Fellowship. But mm. now uh, we're here today as we think through really bouncing off Genesis 11 and the Tower of Babel, where the whole notion of languages is brought in and the implications of that for modern life, you know. What's the, can you just uh, bounce, now you work with KnowledgeWorks uh, and that's that's just a, an organisation that really helps people work through intercultural, uh, develop intercultural skills, would you say? How, how would you describe yes. the nature of the work you're in? The nature of the work is, um, just help people from different cultures yeah. and help them understand themselves as a cultural being mm. and then help them to better understand the person in front of them as a cultural being and have the skill set, the cultural agility to cross, um, to cross the difference. Right. So it's not about understanding this culture or that, understanding the cu- your cultural being. Yes. Who, who am I in that story? Uh, yeah. Yeah, we really talk about self-culture. Yeah. I mean, in my case, I spent 30 years in the Netherlands. Yeah. Then I spent nine years in the United Arab Emirates and Oman. I spent 12 years in America. Now I'm back in Dubai for right. almost two years. So culturally, what am I? Yeah. I am somebody who is profoundly Dutch yeah. with a lot of... Arab and American influence in my yeah, culture. Yeah. And that's why we look at self-culture, like who yeah. am I and who are you? Yeah. Because you spent a year here and it changed you. Yeah. And even further back, I always lived in the overlap of two cultures. Uh, you know, yes. I'm, so I, I was brought, in, brought up yeah. in a Western culture in Australia, but I never quite felt like I fitted in because my parents were Maltese, my extended family was yes. Maltese, and I never quite fitted in either, but shaped by both to a greater or lesser extent. Well, you know what I love about the way you just described that? Two things. One, it helps us love people better. But yes. two, it stops us being making caricatures of cultures, but rather yes. how it how it presents itself within me and how I can love you as you are. So that's I, I love that distinction. It's very helpful. Yes. Can I just ask a question? What's the link between language and culture? Um, or or the place of language in culture as we because we know that uh, you know you know, as a general rule, I, I, we always in wanting people to learn the word of God in their mother tongue. It's so mm. important, isn't it? Because yes. it, with that comes so many other things. Can you just reflect briefly on that? I would say language is an expression of your culture. Right. And so I do a lot with intercultural marriages, my wife and I. Mm. We always encourage people, learn your spouse's language. Right. Because, um, yeah, language develops alongside with the culture that... Uh, it is in right and so to learn and for me to learn the word of god in the language of my heart Mm. makes a deep emotional connection with the word of god yeah but it also makes a cultural connection right so learning so uh learning for you 
Do you have an example of how it's actually helped you even in reading the Bible? Uh, or Now, that wasn't a question you, you planned for, so you can say pass on that one. Uh, <laughs> but I told you I could run down rabbit holes, so you've got to pull me back, Bart. But just in terms of how, if not in your own case, how learning either another culture or learning another language of another culture actually helps us read the Bible better. Um, I would say I learned most of my scripture in Dutch because mm. um, I grew up in Dutch. I lived in the Netherlands from birth till I was 32. And then English started to become my primary language. Mm. But still, my prayer life is mostly in Dutch. Is it? Right. The Bible verses I remember by heart are in Dutch. Right. So many times I go back emotionally to Dutch right. when I pull up verses out of my memory right. instead of English, what is what I'm reading the Bible in now, actually. So just even that, you know, because we could say they're both Western in that sense, yeah. but what, what would say, what would be a difference in the way in which Dutch and English expresses things or appreciates different things. Can you think of an example of where where it might be different? Maybe you can think of, because you're married to yeah. an American, Californian. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So where where does the, because you, you could almost think, oh, they're so similar, there's not much difference. Where have you noticed any kind of difference? I think um, not just language, but culture-wise, yeah. um, Dutch culture is way more direct in your face, right. blunt, as we say it. Yeah, yeah. We are the champions of being direct. American culture is not. Right. Um, in America, if a boss wants to give somebody a negative performance review, they first say uh, three or four positive things, <laughs> and then at the end comes the thing you need to improve on. Okay. And if you don't improve on that, the next year you're fired. Right. In Dutch, they will just give you for a positive performance review, they tell you five things you need to improve on, and then they tell you, oh, you did this fine. And you know you had a stellar review. Ah, wow. So American culture is a lot more affirming, and it shows up in language as well, how people use language. Dutch culture is more in your face, pointing out blemishes, keep you in check. I I remember when I was engaged, um, I was on a retreat with a bunch of Americans. So I was sharing a room with a couple of American guys, uh, most of them married. And my wife was in another building. No, then fiance was in another building sharing a room. And I was just surprised that the one American guy in the course of five hours said sorry to me a hundred times. Wow. Unexpected? Well, just for small things. Like if they're closer than six feet in my way, they will say sorry. And I'm like, what am I doing wrong that people apologize to me that much? Because in Dutch, we don't do that. I mean, we say sorry if we knock you cold on the floor and when passing you in the really island. Is, yeah, it must be really bad. Okay. And so, well, then let's go. That's direct language. But there are yeah. cultures. That, and, and you could still say American has more direct language to it than, say, another culture. Yes. Um, so tell me, what's the difference between direct and indirect yeah. communication? I would say American culture is very direct, but also very affirming. Right. And Dutch culture is very di- direct, but not affirming. Okay, right. And what about a, a, a strongly indirect communication culture? Indirect communication culture, um, they typically want to honor you and not upset you. Mm. So they use indirect language so that you can figure out how it lands. Right, okay. And you have to read between the lines. Yeah. 
So indirect cultures, um, typically, they look at community accountability. Mm. Um, a direct language culture would say like, hey, who did this? Um, and they use singular pronouns to single out responsibility. Right. A community-oriented culture uses plural pronouns like we, us, right. y'all in American English in the South to emphasize that collective community and that the person blends in as the group and is not singled out. Right. And they try not to, if, not to offend the other because that's shameful. Right. So there's a commitment to protect the honor of that person in the context of that yes. communication. Yes. Very helpful. Well, now we're entering into the whole world of intercultural, uh, greater intercultural learning. And I know the, the phrase that I've been exposed to is learning to be mm -hmm. a cultural learner rather than a cultural critic. Mm -hmm. um, and maybe, so let's go down that road a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, there, uh, there, there's three strong, not strong, three categories that uh, capture or describe cultures. And no one's absolutely just one, I think, but innocent guilt, honor, shame, power, fear. But can you just kind of simply explain the differences as we think, I wonder which one I'm more of? Yeah. Yeah, we call them the cultural worldview drivers. Right. And we're all a mix of all three. Cultural worldview drivers. Okay, yes. that's, how, that's a good way of putting it. Yeah. And we're all a mix of all three. Yeah. But typically one is dominant. Mm. So like honor, shame, it's all about to en enhance your honor and the honor of your group and to avoid shame. Mm. So a child that grows up in that culture will grow up with a strong sense of belonging. I'm mm. part of the family. I'm not so much an individual. I'm part of this group. My voice is the voice of my group. Mm. Um, I need to honor the group above all. And the relationship with the group is important. Right. And in the innocence guilt culture, you learn like I'm an individual. I have my own voice. Good and bad is decided by what is right and wrong. Right. And there are rules that rule the world. And a fun story, when we moved after 10 years of living in the Middle East, we moved back to the States. We had a one and a half year old. And when he went to kindergarten three years later, we looked at the books they used. And what is the first book they learned to read? It's all about me. <laughs> the second book they learned to read is Me and My World. <laughs> and we looked at that and we just had like oh. thousands of Syrians coming out of the war into San Diego's refugees. And we're like, if a Syrian comes here and has to send their child to school, how well does this fit with that culture? Oh, wow. So it starts early. Yes, it does. And then we have power fear as a third set of worldview drivers. Mm. And power fear, it's all about um, the leader makes the rules for everybody else to follow. Yeah. But the leader is also exempt to the rules. They can break it as they wish because oh, they're the leader. Right. And in a power fear environment, it's you learn to... Um, that you and your family, you choose to follow the leader because that's beneficial for you. Even if you don't agree with the leader, mm. um, you learn to do what you're told. Mm. Um, and if you break the rules or you go against the leader, there are consequences. And power in itself is not bad. Right, because I think that's what we need to, yeah. I always stumble on this, the power feel, I get the innocent guilt, because I'm more that, I guess. Mm -hmm. I get the shame honor because the Maltese in me. But the power fear, you, we've been trained to think power is always negative in the modern world, uh, in, particularly in the last five to 10 years. Yeah. 
But that's not how it's used. It's not used as a negative concept, is it? No, I had a friend, he's Taiwanese American, he's one of our facilitators, and he did a lot of thinking and articulating around it. And he said, power is an in-your-face reality that should be exuberantly used to be life-giving to those around you. Right. So it's not about having power or not. It's about how do you use it? Right. Do you use it to give life to the people around you? Right. And most, it's, in, it's inevitable then. Yeah. I mean, most people from an innocence guilt environment feel uncomfortable mm. with power, especially if others have more power. And the rest of the world are like, you know, power is just there. Yeah. Nothing we can do about it. But we can challenge people in power mm. to use it for the good of those around them. So what's the fear bit? Because that feels bad. Power feels yeah. bad. Fear, fear. In a way that innocent guilt doesn't, you know, like that, that seems like the right yeah. and wrong category. So this is, uh, you're helping me, but what's the fear part? Is that about fear as in honoring, uh, respecting, uh, affirming? Or? No, I think it's fear consequences. Oh. Fear that. If you violate those in power's yes. authority over you. Okay. And the other interesting thing about power fear is if you want to understand power, you have to ask to the people who don't have power. Right. People in power are not the ones that can explain you power and its consequences. Right. It's the ones without power that can tell you because they live with the consequences. Right, right. Okay, so I remember um, being told that there's, there's three questions you, is, it's always good to have in mind. Yeah. What's the right thing that reflects innocent guilt? Mm -hmm. um, how can I honor the person in front of me in, the, in this particular context? And how can I be life-giving and empowering in the context yes. that I find myself in? Uh, would that be right? Were they, if, if we were strip it down and, and to have a usable tool when I'm engaging in situations, would those three questions at least capture some element of those three differences? Yes, we call it the litmus test for intercultural interaction. Right. And it's like in, in my behavior, in the decisions I make, the things I say, I run that script in the back of my mind right. that I ask myself what I'm about to do or say or what I'm about to decide, does it do honor to the other person? Right. And in my case, I also ask the question, does it honor God? Right. Is it the right thing to do? Does it do justice to that person? And then the second question for me, is it right by God? Mm. And then the third question is, is it life-giving mm. or does it instill fear? Oh. And then for me, the third question as well is, does it express faith in God? Right. That is very helpful. And yeah. I run those in the back of my mind. Yeah. And when I do that, it helps me to make a better decision. It helps me to communicate it better. And it doesn't matter what your worldview mix is because mm. you're a mix of all three. Mm. So if I satisfy all three of these questions, mm. it will land better with you as well. Because mm. every person's uh, co personal culture, if you like, yeah. is a combination of all three yes. to a greater or less, even though yes. one of them will probably <clears throat> yes. clearly dominate. Yes. Yeah. And kind of the trick we use in working interculturally is quickly figure out what is your dominant worldview driver yeah because if i know that one and i um i modify my communication and behavior to resonate with that dominant driver mm. i have a quick inroad to you mm. but you're more than just a dominant driver yeah. you're a mix a of unique course. mix of all three yeah. 
yeah. and as I get to know you better, yeah, of course, I also cater to the other two world feed drivers. Right. But catering to the dominant one gives me a quick inroad to start that relationship in a good way. You know, I'm thinking these are skills that you need, in, especially in Dubai more than ever, because yeah. uh, God has brought the world here. There's 200 nations. We know that in church, we know that in mixed marriages, ethnically mixed yes. marriage, we know that in the workplace, people are forever bumping up and unintentionally wounding each other. Mm -hmm. and uh, And so... Developing a skill set in this area makes life so much better. I suppose you can use it for manipulation, but really the purpose is to use it to love, yeah. uh, that you actually end up, like the languages of love that uh, Chapman yeah. came up with, they're tools to actually help you appreciate the full humanity of the person in front of you. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you're correct. We can use a tool to manipulate or we can use it to give life tool, to the other. Yeah. Any tool is like yeah. that. yeah. So, but how do I, how do we become, I mean, we've already part of answering mm -hmm. the question, but how do we continue to become a cultural learner rather than a cultural critic? What, what, what things have you learned or do you encourage others to be aware of? You know, cause cultures can be different. You know, you, 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 maybe you've got lots yeah. of these examples where, you know, maybe you've got examples of how one culture encounters another one and completely misreads it, condemns it. Do you have any any illustration of? Oh, I have a funny one out of my own marriage, and yeah. it's more language than culture. Um, for the first two years we were married, um, my wife absolutely loved me. She still does. <laughs> I absolutely love her and still do. But she was really annoyed in those first two years. At she would ask me something, and Bart, do you want to do this or this? I said, Well, I don't care. Um, whatever. And it would annoy You're relaxed, her. you're open, either option. I'm relaxed, okay. open. Yeah. And she's an English teacher, so after two years, she finally figured out that in my language, in my dialect in Dutch, and in our family culture, I don't care and I don't mind are the same word. Wow. So I translated it in the different, in the wrong version in English. Right. And when that got apparent, I quickly learned myself to say, honey, I don't mind, I'm fine either way. Right. But before that, I used to say for two years, honey, I don't care. <laughs> Which is, I don't care about you or? It is, I care about you and therefore I don't care about which choice you make. Oh, I see. But she only heard, I don't care. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and once we had that figured out, actually, yeah. it helped our marriage a lot further along. Yeah. And yeah. we laugh about it, but yeah. it's a difference in, yeah. in culture. And yeah. um, I would say a cultural learner is somebody who strives to analyze and interpret the other's behavior mm -hmm. through their cultural lens. Right. And a cultural critic is somebody who analyzes and judges the other's behavior through their own cultural lens. Mm -hmm. Now, I, um, uh, okay, so I, I, I know it's interesting when you were talking, I was thinking of a scene where we had some relatives over went back in Australia. They're all my cousins, right? They're Maltese. And my wife provided a meal and she provided, had uh, rice in the meal. And uh, my mum said, where's the bread? And I, and, and, and I said to Sandy, where's the bread? And uh, my wife, and, and Sandy said, but the carbs are in the, in the uh, rice. So for her, I mean, it's not so much, but, but she just couldn't get past the fact that for her, she provided rice, you don't need bread, but in Maltese culture, you always have to have bread, you know, like it's uh, it's staple diet. And so she was just thinking logically, but 
the, and, and again, it probably doesn't fit any of those three, but it's just another example of just little differences that you can, you can say, you know, yeah. you, you can be instinctively judgmental or for me to love these people, I actually need to work according to their rhythm, their, 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 their preferences. Yeah. Yes. Well, you could say in Dutch, like a wine meal without potatoes is not a meal. Okay. A cold meal thing. without cheese and milk is not a meal. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I, I get that one. Where, yeah. Where's the bread? It makes me think um, when I look at the different worldviews, mm. it's a big thing we see is how do people make up? Um, in my culture, uh -huh. in the Netherlands, it's... How you make up after a conflict? Yeah. Yeah. So very much, um, and at least my wife and I are similar in that. It's like, if you blew it, you want to make up, you just have to say, I was wrong. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. Right. We were in a workshop and we asked that question. And this was like a mixed group, people from different cultures. And somebody from the Arab world shouted out, like, my wife just has to take me to a fancy restaurant on a busy night. And the response question from our side was, and does she need to apologize? I said, no, just take me out to a fancy restaurant. So they've had a conflict, but for the Arab, Arabic person, he's not needing an I'm sorry. The actual taking him out to a dinner in a public, why? what's the significance of that? The significance is that he is seen in a fancy restaurant. So people see him and people see like, oh, this guy can afford this restaurant. Ah. Um, this is fancy. So this must be an important guy. Right. And that's so it's public honor. Right. Even though they wouldn't know any of the context, but this is, the, is this the wife speaking or is this just another person? So it's in that um, example, would that, would that be husband-wife scenario? That would be a husband-wife scenario. Yeah, okay, right. Wow, okay. So no sorry needed. Whereas in innocent guilt cultures, the I'm sorry is critical. Yes. And the ownership of it. Yes. Which means then in reverse, if someone then gives me a gift rather than says I'm sorry, I shouldn't see it. I, I should see it how as their attempt to be reconciled to me and that they're up, that they're the that they're owning to some extent that the grief that they've caused yes. and not be judgmental on them that they haven't said, I'm sorry. That's their way of saying, yes. in my language, I'm sorry. Yes. I love you. I'm for you. Make, making up, reconciling that conflict, it's cultural. Yeah. And I believe, especially in an intercultural marriage, we should practice like all three. We should practice apologizing yeah. and honoring the other okay. and being benevolent and loyal. Right. Because so, the okay. power of fear, it's if you're in power, you make up by being benevolent and giving gifts. Mm. If you're not in power, yes, you do apologize and you show loyalty. Mm. But we need to practice all three of those, how the different worldview drivers apologize because we're holistic people. Right. Okay. So not simply revert back to your preferred way, but actually to actually broaden your way. Yes. Yeah. It does, because in the Bible, you can see all three elements, can't you? you know, when we think of the cross, for example, you, know, that's, you, you can view it in terms of you know, penal substitution. Jesus mm -hmm. took the penalty, uh, removing our guilt. That's very innocent guilt kind of mm -hmm. categories. But for the joy set before him, he endured uh, the shame, the shame of, of the cross. So you've got that happening. And then 
with power fear, he's disarming the principalities and powers. So having those three categories yes. in your head actually makes you a better reader of the Bible, I can see. Yes. And when you go back to the cross, um, we always stress on the cross, Jesus dealt with sin mm. and guilt and fear and shame are results of sin and sinfulness. So by dying for us on the cross, he took our sin away. Mm. And he wants the penal substitution. Mm -hmm. And there is no guilt because the price is paid. Mm -hmm. But Jesus also dealt with our shame of being cast out of God's family. Right. And Jesus also took away God's wrath because he was the, um, the gift of propitiation. Mm -hmm. And what it means, and we've seen it in the West often, is there's such a focus on just on the guilt part yeah. that we forget that Jesus also took care of our shame. And a lot of people are struggling with shame in the West because they don't know it was dealt with on the cross. Yeah. And this before we end, because that's a very that's a good rebuke to me. And I you weren't meaning to do it, but I personally feel the rebuke of that as a preacher because I definitely lean to the penalty guilt, less to the shame. And I'm I'm trying to think more of it's that 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 vein of teaching that's right from the beginning to the end in the Bible. Just the difference between guilt and shame before we wind up, but. Have you got any reflections on that? So guilt is um, feeling bad for what I've done. It's about actions. Mm. And guilt can be undone by paying the price. Mm. So for instance, if you break the law um, in an innocence guilt culture, uh, you get the fine, you're done. You do your prison sentence, and in theory, after your prison sentence, you start with a fresh slate. Mm. Shame is feeling filthy for who you are. So shame is about identity and guilt is about a record of what you've done. Right. So shame is a lot harder to wipe out. Right. Is shame got to do with the, in the presence of others? Is, is there any aspect to that as well? Yes, because honor and shame is what others bestow on you. Right. So that's why you see like if somebody somebody's worldview driver is predominantly honest shame. Mm. Typically, it's a community-oriented culture. Right. Because I cannot be an honorable, honorable person unless somebody is there to bestow honor on me. Right. And I can feel a shameful person without anybody else bestowing shame on me. But typically, shame is also public. Public. It's got the corporate nature. But you have opened up so many doors and I've got a feeling more people want to keep talking yeah. to you and let's keep this conversation going. But you've helped me as a human, as a husband and as a preacher. Uh, and thank so, you. and I know you've helped many others who are listening to this uh, conversation. So, but thank you so much, brother. That was terrifically helpful. Friends, uh, I, hope, uh, I hope that was encouraging for you as it definitely was for me. It's really opened the doors to not only how to love people better, but how to read the Bible better and more holistically. And I think uh, Bart's given us a tremendously helpful framework for that. Well, we continue our series uh, uh, next week as we look at Genesis 12, and uh, Bill will be here to open that up further for us. So if you've missed out on the podcast, you can get them on, um, you, or the messages rather, on Genesis 1 to 12. You can get that on YouTube and our social media outlets. But look forward to seeing you again next week as we journey our way through Origins in Genesis 12.